Join us for a compelling episode as we delve into the journey of Antoinette Edwards, a dedicated community leader and social justice advocate, from her early experiences as an educator to her pivotal role in supporting marginalized communities. Edwards' journey is a testament to the transformative power of love, acceptance, and solidarity. Antoinette Edwards was born in the segregated South in 1952, Sullivan, Alabama. It was, um, I had a wonderful childhood. I knew that we were poor, but it didn't define who we were. We had a community, we had a village, we had a neighborhood. My mom and dad, I'm the oldest of six children. And we began in a one-room house. But my memories of that one-room house, we all slept in the same bed. Uh, There were three of us at the time, four. But what I remember, we had a wood stove. And my mom would put the blanket, you know how you put something in front of the fire to get it warm. She'd put that blanket in front of the fire to get it warm. Then she'd lay it on us so it would feel the warmth. And it was like a, a warm cloud flowing down from heaven. And that's the memory that I have, along with the outhouse, the slop jar. And, you know, everybody got the government cheese, that big old can of peanut butter and that big old thing of sugar. But it wasn't shame. We all were in that space. And I remember picking cotton. I remember getting on the truck, picking cotton, and folks would pick you up, and my legs would dangle on that truck. I'm going to pick some cotton. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to help my mom and daddy. But picking cotton, it was hard. You had to pick a whole lot of cotton. And them bubs, that would prick your fingers. I said, it's going to take me, but it ain't wearing nothing. And I put some clunks of dirt in there, and I got caught. And that was my career picking cotton was ended really pretty soon. And I don't think I was mad about that. But it's just one of the many memories. One of the memories of my awareness of the segregation. It wasn't just going into town with my daddy. Uh, He worked at the oil mill and my mom, one of her many jobs was to cook. And it was really weird that my mom would cook for these white folks, but we couldn't come through the front door. We'd pick her up and we'd have to go through the back and wait. And sometimes she had some things left over to bring us home. And that was a treat. But I think the most profound memory an image that I have of the segregation was when my daddy and I went into town. And I I love my daddy. My daddy was amazing. And when I'm this little bitty girl, I was like five years old. And I looked up, he looked like he was just like tall and, and just fine. And we were going into town together to go to a washing machine that you could put your clothes in a washing machine. You put some money in and it would wash your clothes. I'm like, wow, that was like magic to me because we had the washing machine. It was a ringer and you had to put it in and have to bring it through. And, you know, that was kind of elevation for us because my grandma still had the big old pot that she would wash the clothes right there in a big old pot. So I'm going into town with my dad and we got our dirty clothes in a pillowcase and we get ready to go into the wash house and Dirt Dauber, that's his name. I never forget it. It was a white dude. And it was pretty cool because down south, you knew your lane. But he and my dad would cool. They'd go hunting together. But Dirt Dauber met us at the door. He said, Woodley, sorry, you can't go in. And my daddy looked, and I looked. And he said, Woodley, I'm sorry, you can't go in. And I remember my dad just had kind of a different kind of look on his face, and he kind of like, dropped his head, and I held his hand, and we walked out together. We didn't ever really talk about that. Now that I'm sharing that, we never really talked about that. It was that unspoken understanding. The same kind of understanding that when we went to town, there was a white and a colored fountain, and there was a picture show that we could go up in the balcony. And then there was this Then there was a swimming pool. White kids could go, and we swam in lake, kind of dirty. 
I never, I remember rabbit drowned in that lake. So the segregated South, uh, I have those memories, those, uh, the good times that when you kill a hog, you got to stay out of school because that was a big thing. That big old pot and there was these, and it could be a little gross to folks now, but back in the day, it was the, the pot bell and we would blow that up like it was a balloon from the hog. And I remember my dad would go hunting, hunting rabbits. My mom would make rabbit balls and we had a smokehouse. So there were a lot of memories of my cousins, how we would make furniture out of straw. So I had that playful side, and I knew there was poverty, but it didn't define us because I knew that I was loved. I always knew that I was loved, even when the junk man would come. And uh, I said, I want to help my mom and dad with some money. So I sold, I gave the junk man a stove, a stove outside, and I'm thinking I'm helping my daddy. He had to go back and negotiate to get the get it back. But I, re, I just have wonderful memories. Fast forward, as the oldest, my mother was having children, and my father they were they were trying to do the best that they could. And my grandparents, my mom's an only child, and my grandparents were just so integral in my life. It was like that extended family, and uh, my grandfather's brother. Bali Manning came up north, and he was telling my grandfather, uh, you know, you can make it up here. You know, we were part of that great migration. So my grandfather moved up north and was making a way for my grandmother to come, my grandma Vastai, and they wanted me to come with them. And I love my mom and dad, and I love my grandparents. But my daddy said, I'm not giving away my firstborn. You know, we're struggling. We're going to be all right. And he was trying to get the nerve to tell my grandmother that, uh, you know, I love you, but you, you can't take my baby. And my daddy went to bootleg house, and he said the more he tried to get drunk to get the courage to tell my grandmama that <laughs> I wasn't going, he, he couldn't get drunk. So I came up north, and it was a beautiful thing. I really feel like I had the best of both worlds because every summer I'd go home. I'd go home with my parents. And I'd get up on my daddy's horse, and I'd ride the horse, and I'd play with my cousins and my sisters and brothers. So I really felt that I was blessed that I didn't have to choose. I was surrounded by love, north and south. But the south, I remember when I came up north, and I went to Highland School. It was Highland then. And I'm coming up here, and I'm sounding kind of different. Everybody said, you talk different. You know that stuff, and I call everybody, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. And I had that Southern drawl. And it was just that built-in politeness. And you said hi to everybody. Because down south, I don't care if you go up and down the road, 20 times people say, hey, how you doing? And you wave back. But coming up north, it was a little different. So when my grandmother had registered me for school, I was a little nervous. It was so different. And I remember she took me to school, and I ran out. I didn't want to go to school. I want to go back home with my grandma. Because she made some tea cakes, and I want to go be with my grandma. So I'm running away from school, Highland School. We lived, we lived on um, 20 Northeast Fargo Street. And I'm running home, and I see my grandmother walking back. And thank goodness I ran away from school because my grandmother had gotten lost. She didn't know how to get back home. And so she let me come home that day. But I went back to school, and I blended in. I, I loved the learning, the rich learning, and I had lots of friends. So that was a good part of it. Um, I went from uh, Highland, and then I went to Boyce Elliott, and I remember being bused. I was one of the first sets of people, kids being bused. That was a different experience uh, from this neighborhood school where I'd walk to school, and I'd walk past Wonder Bread Bakery. And it was just the smell of the fresh bread and just the memories of home. And, and there was a record shop down the store. And there was an ice cream parlor across the street. And the Robinsons had a grocery store. It was my neighborhood. And I loved that. And I loved reading. So I was friends with the teachers. And I just, um, I remember there was a talent show. And I got excited about participating in the talent show at boys' school. And I remember... Everybody's going to sing and dance and lip sing, doing a temptation, this and that. No, I want to do a poem because I love reading. I love poetry. And Langston Hughes was my favorite poet. 
And I remember the poem that I, uh, that I recited, and it was The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the sound of human voices. And I thought, wow. And kids liked it. I was like, they ain't gonna like no poem, but they got it. So that was just uh, my early learning. It was really fruitful. But being bused, I was bused to West Sylvan. I remember going to school with the Lipmans and the Tonkins and all these names that were like rich white kids. And it was assimilating. It was really a different experience for me um, because at Boyce Ellen, I was an A student. And all of a sudden, B, C student struggling. It's like, am I not smart? White people smarter than black people? All these images go through your mind. And, and I remember riding the bus up the hill and then coming down. It was kind of like a, coming back down to poverty. And it had me feeling some kind of way about this neighborhood that I love, the neighborhood where we get roller skates and get that crate and make them go karts and where you get some uh, cardboard and roll down the hill. All of a sudden, I kind of looked at it like, oh, Am I less than? And I struggled with those feelings. And um, I had some friends that didn't do as well um, with that experience. I have a friend. Um, she got on drugs. She OD'd. It was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, because when a child see that, uh, am I less than? I'm not as good as. But I, I persevered. And uh, it's something when you're surrounded and you know you're loved. My grandfather, who never drove a car, uh, worked at Sheraton Hotel. He washed dishes. We never suffered. Then I remember my, I went back home and I said, I want my sister to come home with me one summer. And my daddy said, I ain't nobody else coming up there. And, you know, and I was a praying child. My mom, I was raising at Pentecostal church. And I said, if I pray, something's going to happen. Prayed and my sister came up. So we, we go to school together. My grandfather, who never drove, my grandmother, who never drove, um, they got a charge card at J.C. Penney's so that we can look cute like all the other kids. And I always wondered how, how they did it, how they made a way. And I remember my grandparents, we would walk to the library on Killingsworth. That's why that's my library for life. And I could check out books and check out art. And it was just a wonderful learning experience. So I... I say that to say that I had a, a rich childhood, and I remember, so some people said, you know, how did you get involved loving children? I felt like we get to be loved no matter what your address or your zip code, because I was loved. And I always remember that, uh, I think it was the quote, the African quote, and how are the children? Because if the children are well, we're all well. I think we should ask more of that now. How the children? I'm not doing very good with that. But at a fast forward, and um, I did really well in school because I loved learning. And um, we moved to the Sumner Courts, and they're still there. Looks a little different. We moved to the Sumner Courts, and my sister went to Jefferson. And I think I was on kind of like a different kind of academic track. I went to um, Girls Poly, all-girls school that's still longer there. And it was a rich experience because, again, it's like I had the best of both worlds. I'd go to Girls Poly, but, you know, I'm writing in back of Jefferson High School, so I'm in the hood. I'm in the community. So I got it all. Girls Poly was a wonderful, rich experience. I started the uh, first black student union. I was a president. That felt really good. I rebelled, and I think that may be the word. You weren't supposed to wear pants. I'm saying, hey, let's call out here. It's not no more pants of pants. Got suspended, but got through that. And I was able to have friends with the black and white. So that was a wonderful experience. But my, um, but I'd go back home to Sumner Courts. And if I can tell you how beautiful that experience was, it was a community. We looked out for each other. We even knew who would go in and steal TVs. Johnny Ray, go to jail and come out and get, and Johnny Ray going to steal something. Don't let him in your house, y'all. And I want to say this with love and respect for the hood. Um, my grandparents raised us really wonderfully well, but my grandfather got really sick. And so my grandmother and grandfather moved to Denver. 
And they made the decision to let me stay in that apartment at 17 years old with my sister, who was 15. We live in that apartment, and the community took care of us. I worked as a teacher's assistant at Humboldt School, but you know, it was government property, so the rent, it was manageable. But uh, there were pimps and prostitutes. They cared for us. We felt protected. No one came and no one messed with us. And it was that kind of a, and we'd babysit, and some people were struggling hard times, and some of the prostitutes would come over, and they would look in and see how my sister and I were doing, and I was working, and uh, it was all, it was okay, because I felt supported as I'm going to, uh, after I'm going to Humboldt School, and I'm also going to PCC, because I had goals. What do I want to do when I grow all the way up? Um, my sister, I remember I got my first check, one of the first checks I got, and there was an Albertsons and we've been struggling. Cause I remember that one, one Thanksgiving, we have peanut butter and crackers. We don't want nobody to know. We cool. We got this. And we didn't do so well on the budget, but you know, we were cool with that. We, we were really okay with that. So when I got my next check, I think it's like making up my sister who went and spent the whole check on food. Now this is how the community is. The manager, manager Robert, he let me come back, take the food back, and gave me the money back. And I say that for a reason, because when you have community, there's grace. Because my grandparents were in the community. I remember North Williams Avenue. When I was going to, uh, it was Elliot, Boyce Elliot. I could go to the grocery store and charge things, because my grandfather had credit. He had it like that. We go to Boston. They have the shoes. Uh, was it Lou's, Leon's Man's Store? The, and this is the first time I saw brothers with these socks. They were sheer, like sheer stockings. Somebody said, oh, them pimp socks. Then they had stripes, and them pimp stripe socks. But it was community, and it was just a loving space and place. And uh, as we grew and I continued my education, I graduated uh, Portland State, and uh, in my career, it's really been rich and varied. I I loved being a teacher assistant, and uh, I love education, so I pursued a career uh, degree in teaching. And that was good. I, I taught at Metropolitan Learning Center, MLC, and I enjoyed that. And then I said, I want to do more. Um, I branched out of trying to be a parole probation officer, but that was not my calling. It's good to know when something ain't your calling, because I remember as a parole officer assistant, and this brother, rest in peace, he violated his paroles on so many levels. So I go with this guy named Ed to arrest him. And they had to arrest him. You know the brother didn't go down easy. And I remember, I mean, he was abusive to women. He just done a lot of bad things. And he looked up at me and he said, oh, you the kind of sister that put your foot on a brother's back when he down and out. And I said, oh. I'm not that kind of sister. I don't, I, don't, I don't want this job. The guy said, I don't think this is a career for you. I said, I moved on from that. And I moved on to self-enhancement. And Tony and Ray, uh, Tony said, Ned, and he's a dear friend, Tony Hobson, I want you to do this job, but you got to get a driver's license. I said, oh, I don't want to drive. My husband was driving me around, driving Miss Daisy, you know, because my Grandmother didn't drive. My grandfather didn't drive. And I was comfortable. You know, I had a way of getting where I needed to be. But that was a challenge. I got my license. He said, you're going to be, I was the first parent coordinator for self-enhancement. He said, you're going to have to go make home visit. You can't be getting on bus and dropping off. And if you know Tony, he just kept it 100. I said, no, I can't. So that was a wonderful, I love that experience of self-enhancement. I was able to do a lot of wonderful things to be creative. We started the first parent choir. And I remember this sister, oh, I love this sister. She passed recently, Bunny Johnson. I wanted her to be in the parent choir, and she just gotten out of jail. And I share this story with Bunny. Several people came up to me and said, Bunny speaks of you. It said you were the first sister to say welcome home without any judgment. So when she came with self-enhancement, I said, girlfriend, you got to be in this choir. She said, uh uh-uh. I'm working on getting my kids back. And the night y'all have choir rehearsal, that's my AA, and I ain't missing that on nothing. So I changed the night for the choir rehearsal. And so she came. The choir was really awesome. 
And she went on to become the first parent to receive that coveted SEI jacket. And when she passed away, her daughter asked me to speak. And I was able to kind of reflect on that. And it was another, not about me, but community, when community welcomes you in. But at self-enhancement, I was able to start the group Sisters Reflecting Beauty. And because I always saw that when you know who you are and you love who you are, it makes everything better. And and I'd seen abuse. I had experienced abuse. And I didn't want young women to have that experience. So Sisters Reflecting Beauty was like not who you are, loving yourself, journaling, and empowering. And I am so proud and pleased to say that that still continues to this day. And I think they they started their uh, group Brothers Reflecting Brotherhood. But as my career grew, um, I wanted to do more. And, of course, Tony's blessing. I went on to work with Multnomah County. And that was a commitment that really helped to uh, me to have a greater understanding of community needs and issues. I had the opportunity to work with parents of um, and children that were drug-affected. And I would go into the homes and just to meet parents where they were. And that's when people were struggling with crack. And I had the opportunity to be there for the parents and the children because my sister suffered uh, from crack addiction. So I knew what that was like to lose your best friend to drugs because my sister was my best friend. And so in working in that position, I was able to bring families together and all of the resources. How do we support families and keeping them united? And uh, there were some struggles, and sometimes I bring them home. I ended up, my, my husband, one Friday I brought a young woman home, and she know I could share her story. Um, her mom was on crack, and she came to school, and she was just distraught. And she said, my mom ain't been home. I got, I got to go back to her husband. He there at the house. Spirit, I couldn't let that baby, I couldn't let her go home. So... She said, she came to school and she said, when I tried to pull the window down, it cracked. And that was like, it cracked just like I cracked. So she came home with me that Friday and she never went back. But I was able to connect with her father, Larry, and her mom. And together, I said, Larry, if you want to get your daughter, I'll work with you. It's not always easy for dads to be dads. I'm just going to put that out there. But we worked together, and I worked with her mom. Didn't make any enemies. She wanted the best for her daughter. She let her daughter, uh, she'd come over to the house. Mom was a beautician, and she'd do her hair. And eventually, uh, Larry did get Porsche, and she wanted to do really well. Um, But I had some situations in working with the county that I challenged the system. True story. Uh, I worked at Ockley Green uh, through the county. And there's a young man, had body odor. Teachers were scared to tell this sixth-grade child that he stank. So they came to me. Oh, well, uh, I, you know, he's had some body odors, and you know his, I know his family, they're, um, they're gang-affiliated. Snow, I said their name is well-known gang family. So this is the child. So they asked me what I tell, tell him he stinks. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. So I go to him. I said, baby, we're going to do a smell test. Of course, I had a relationship because you don't, don't just tell somebody they foul. And I said, um, we're going to do the smell test. I want you to come to school fresh, doing your best. And if you do, if you do this, try to think the period of time, we're going we're gonna to have a treat. You're going to go. And it was mine, Frank's in at Lloyd's, and you're going to go to mine, Frank, and you can pick out any cologne you want. And he did. Uh, and he was washing because he was light complexed, and you could tell just that the dirt that it, he just, he had missed, missed some pieces. And he successfully did that. And I took him out to lunch, and it's the first time he'd, he'd been out, he'd gone to a restaurant. I'm still connected with that family. He had some challenges. He'd gone to prison. He, he's come out. He's doing well. He's doing well. In fact, my daughter who's teaching at Jefferson. is teaching his daughter. And I gave his daughter a picture of the family in my house. That's what's wrong. I crossed the line. I had a family intervention meeting in my house. 
and I felt safe. And they said that was a violation. You can't do that. Uh, but that family, uh, there's been some tragedies, and I, I've been able, I feel honored that I've been able to be a friend. And I want to talk a little bit about relationships, because when you get that, when I would work with gang members, there was one little girl named Susie. Mom, addiction. She had a hard time coming to school, so I'd go to pick her up for school, and I'd bring her home. You know, sometimes I'm stepping over folks that's passed out, and it was a mess, but Susie would come to school, and then, and I was driving a county car. You know, back then, I looked like a police car, a county car, so I'm I'm taking her home, and there's a bunch of gang members on the steps, and they look like, driving up in this car like this, and they, it's like, Jesus, when they part the sea, they just parted and let me just walk in and to work with the mom and the daughter. And I'm saying like the value relationships, because when you pe- meet people where they are, when you see their goodness, they respond. I've never been disrespected. Never been disrespected by the young men and their young sisters in the community. And, and I, 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 do, I take great honor and pride in that because I see them. I see them. I see who we are in them. So that's kind of the career. So I was there with the county, moved on. Uh, I was the first director of um, diversity at Red Cross. They'd never had a director at Red Cross. And that was really uh, quite an experience, working more with white folks. And it's that kind of covered racism. Like, we don't need a diversity director. Red Cross is for all people. Like, you're right. So I come in, and they're looking like, how are you going to tell us about who we are? I remember this big old fat white dude and I'm doing a workshop and he's just going I ain't doing nothing this Negro so I we kind of played a game and I said who are you what's your pedigree and he said I'm kind of a mutt I'm kind of this and I'm kind of that and I'm kind of that then he just kind of broke down and what I learned from that was it was his fear and I just approached him like, you know, you cool. We cool. We're going to get through this. He became one of my best friends. It wasn't all kumbaya. One white woman challenged me. So I, I just had to uh, file suit against her. I said, you know what, bro? We, we're not going to play this. She's an old white woman. and You're going to come in here with this diversity stuff. And I wanted to have a um, reach out to uh, brothers and sisters at Dawson Park. I said, you want folks to come and give their blood? Why should they? We have the Tuskegee. Uh, incidents. We have memories of how we've been treated. I said, you've got to relate to them and let them have an understanding of how they can support and how they're needed. So we're going to have a domino tournament and do some things and just meet them and, and kind of like uh, reach out and uh, with this blood camp- campaign. And she just poo-pooed it to the point. I said, you know what? We're not going to do this. And she ended up coming back, apologizing. She had to, whatever it was. But my point is, when you fight for what's right, you have the courage to do what's right. And when people get in the way, there's a way that they go, they just move to the side and keep it moving. So I was having a great time at Red Cross. Uh, we brought diversity there. In fact, an Indian woman came up to me last week and said, you hired me to do that. Reverend Joyner came and saying, I mean, it was just powerful. It was bringing people together. And I, I really felt good about that. I thought that was my calling. But then Sam Adams reached out and he asked me to help recruit someone to do um to do uh, to be the peacekeeper for the city of Portland. And I'm giving him names of folks. I think they'd be good for this. And then he and his chief staff said, I think you'd be good for this. I'm like, I'm not trying to do this job. Or, you know, I'm cool. You know, peacekeeper with the police. I'm good. But when I thought about it, I said, is this an opportunity? How do we bring community together with our concerns? You know, what's happened? Kendra, with the smoke them, no choke them. Because I used to go to the Burger Barn, so I lived that experience with the racism with police. But I thought it's a wonderful opportunity to bridge, and we did that. I know there was one commander said, oh, she ain't going to last long. And uh, he went away. It was all good. Uh, there were some police officers. There were some challenges. But I learned how to break through that blue line with my integrity, never giving up who I was or representing my people, uh, but giving them a space to be heard. And we started a a community organization, um, Community Peace Collaborative, that's still going on today. And I think uh, 
So I've worked with three mayors, Sam Adams, uh, Charlie Hills, and then Ted. Because that's our hope. That's their, People say that's our future. That's our to now. And I've seen when dreams have been crushed. And it's hard to get that back. But if you can reach a child, if you can touch a child, because I remember how I was loved, and it made a difference through some obstacles, some challenges. And and I'd like to think that when people know better, they do better around parenting. I uh, I had the opportunity to, I had a contract with Morrison, and it was uh, working with grandparents, black grandparents, black um, caregivers that had to take over care of their children. And I remember Darlene at Ockley Green lived with her mom along with her three other siblings. Darlene came to school one day and she had some um, bruises. As a mandatory reporter, I had to report that. That hurt my heart. That was the hardest thing to do because I had a relationship with her grandmother, this big, black, strong, beautiful woman. And she whooped her. And I know what it's like to get a whooping. Back to down, remember when, go get that tree, go get, oh, mama, that's mean. You're going to whip me? Plus, I got to go get what you're going to whip me with? So I could relate to that. But there was no abuse. And so I talked to this grandmother. This is a grandmother that had marched with Dr. King. How am I going to go to JDH and say she was abusive? So we talked together, and we went before the judge. And, of course, you know, we worked it through. And I, did, I want to preserve her, her dignity. Like, how dare you accuse her? But from that, Morrison contacted me and said, you know, you handle that so well. Would you be willing to do some training uh, with black parents to kind of help them know that there are different ways of um, having consequences and uh, without whipping? And I did that. And it was, it was, it was a wonderful experience. There was a, a young brother that was trying to get his daughter and there were some issues, and he didn't know how to read. So I'm thinking, how am I going to get him to understand the different ways? So we, I learned how to be creative, and we would act it out, and, and we had tapes for him. And people came through knowing that there were different ways to discipline your children because I didn't uh, believe in spanking. And some folks, oh, you don't went to that college, got that degree, and now you're trying to be all, all white on this. I said, no, I th- think there are different ways because there are different ways to let your child know their options. And uh, so that's why when I say my love for children, because their beauty and their innocence, and when you violate that, I see what happened because I work with the women, abusers, you know, hurt people, hurt people. So I wanted to interact. I wanted to stop that. My son, Khalil Tamir. He's great. And uh, I knew it was gay. I was just waiting for him to know what gay meant so he could say he was gay. My husband and I both. I remember my my husband uh, uh, did amazing work in the community. He was the uh, president for Little League. He uh, he coached our daughters with basketball. And uh, so, you know, and our other sons had played football and, and daughters had played basketball. And so he said, oh, Khalil, you want to uh, go down here and try out baseball? And my son said, Dad, I'm not a sports kind of guy. And we just kind of laughed and left alone, no pressure. And so he's an amazing young man, and I don't just say that because he's my son. He has this light and this goodness. And, and for an example, our children, one son, my oldest son was struggling. He said, the only person I'm going to get a Christmas gift is Khalil. He don't talk about nobody. He love on everybody. Mom, I thought, okay, that's good. So Khalil, um, although he was accepted and loved by the family, nothing but love, and he was received. In fact, he would have his friends, his gay friends coming over because our house became that, that safe house. Our house was the safe house. And so his gay friends would come over, and one of his friends, I remember <laughs> Claire's day, he said, do you think your mom and dad know I'm gay? And Khalil said, man, you re-gay. And we just kind of laughed about it. And he had another 
friend that was gay. His name was Gene. Gene entered this contest to be, a, it's like Rose Festival uh, Princess. It was for the gay community, Rosebud. And Gene entered, and Gene won for Rosebud. So, and it was a Friday night I'll never forget. It was a Friday night, and that's always been my husband. That's been our date night. You know, and we had fireplace, and we just in our mood. Somebody knocking on the door, it's like, who that? Who that? Everybody know. So we go to the door, and it's Gene. Gene shows up, and Gene was this big, black, just full of joy and love. And he had this uh, award. He said, I won. I won. I'm Rosebud. Gene had on this glittery uh, red mini dress, and he was so happy. And there was joy that he could come. He knew that he would be accepted. But the sadness was that there was nowhere else that he could go to celebrate. So my son and I decided to start the first black P flag in the nation. And P flag is parents and friends of lay of a lesbian and gay youth. And I'm so proud of the work that we were able to do together. Together we did a report with Urban League on the issues of the black gay community. Uh, we were able to start, we were honored with the honorary and the uh, gay pride community. You know, we led the parade and we were just jamming and black folks showed up, showed out in droves that they could be seen and loved and accepted. And we jammed, we did that. Uh, we've done a lot of things. We started uh, Thanksgiving Day because we, it was really clear that for many young gay black men and women and trans that there was nowhere else they could go for have that Thanksgiving that they weren't welcomed. So we would do the potluck and people bring the greens and we we just loved on them. And we started a conversation with some of the pastors to have a, just an open dialogue of, uh, y'all know gay people up in there. Look, look at your choir director, look at the choir folks. Come on now, give them some love. And I remember going to a very distinguished black church, my husband and I. And uh, this pastor, prominent pastor, said, yeah, because God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And this young brother that was sitting beside me, tears had started coming down his cheeks. And he was kind of sobbing and crying. And I just kind of reached over and just held him and just let him sob. Just let him sob that in this house where everyone should be loved and accepted, that's what he got. So that's what P flag, black P flag did for us. It gave us that platform to be welcoming and loving. And we just, my, my son did so many wonderful things with that. And I, I'm just really proud of that. And my husband was right there. In fact, my husband in his work as a labor union uh, administrator, he just so many good things. He's, put in their constitution, gender-affirming language for the IBEW national constitution. And he's done so many things to, so that people are all acknowledged. So when I say that, my son and I, my husband, my children are right there with us and supporting that. Wow. It's so beautiful. In fact, there's a picture uh, that when our son graduated uh, from college and he got his master's, and my husband reached over to hug him, and he kissed him. And it was such a beautiful, because my husband is black, and if you know, he's that alpha man, and kissing our fine gay son. It, it's just, he loves him. And our son, my husband, our son, we have that, he has that relationship that he'll just call, how you doing, Dad? And when you know when you get old, when your children call because they love you, they ain't asking for no money. And it's like, how you doing, Dad? And I was thinking about you, and he, and he gets them the special gifts. And for Father's Day, this last Father's Day, uh, my son and his partner had just, they moved to California, bought a house. They flew us down, my husband down for Father's Day to celebrate with him and uh, brunch. And they just treat him like a king. They did also ask him to put a light up because he is an electrician. So they did get that out of him. But, and they had gone to this store and bought him this beautiful kente outfit, just two-piece outfit, and, and my son's partner had picked it out. And it was kind of like saying, you know, to honor your, your, your dad for the king that he is. And what I say to my son's partner, thank you for loving my son, and you take such good care of him. I said, you're the best son in love that I could ever have. 
uh, we worked really hard on the gay marriage campaign and were really excited for that. And uh, some uh, a gay couple that we had mentored were the first to get married on that. And so we were able to do a lot of things that I'm really proud of today. What's neat is the village. We need to incorporate the village. Bring that village concept back. I've experienced it. I experienced it in Alabama in the worst of times. I experienced it in Portland, Oregon when we lived on Garfield when my children and the neighbors could sleep on the front porch. I remember when people can come in the house and the door was not locked. So it's not like inventing something that didn't happen. If we remember who we are as a people and to know that our children need those images of us being our best self and not giving up on them. Even when they stumble and they fall and they get back up, don't give up on them. To see their greatness and let them know that they have a purpose and they are not an accident. Everybody that made it, we made it through that middle passage. That was no accident. They made it through to this life. There's no accident. Embracing them and coming together because sometimes I think in the organizations, they act like gang members because they siloed. You get this piece of money and you get this piece of money and we don't work together. How do we collaborate? You have this lane. I have that lane. It's like getting together the potluck back in the day with the village. Well, I got this meal. You got that meal. We put together. We got, we have a banquet. Creating a seat at the table for everyone and involving our youth. Uh, as an elder, we work together, not because we have this great wisdom platter, but because we have something we want to share with you and we need you to be a part of it. Acknowledging the gifts that they bring. And I know that uh, third grade, I think there's a measure by third grade, you can there's this data that shows if you're going to be successful if you're not reading. We need to be in the schools. I know there was something when the fathers would go on that first day to welcome them. When there's no photo op, where are we? How do we show up? Calling out the churches. You're that, that stabling force. Back in the day with Dr. King and his letter from Birmingham, he had to chastise the preachers. Where are you in this safe space? Get out of your comfort zone and see what's needed and bring it. Every child should have someone that they can turn to. And it's proven if you have that one person, that one person, it's like a counselor told me, you're struggling. And, and I said, how do you do your work with the child? They got to go back into all that ugliness, that dirt, the crime. She said, but they got that string to hold on to. Every child needs that string. And we need to strengthen that string till it becomes a stronger thread, that it's a rope. And then it's woven through all of the gifts that we have in the community. I really think we have all that we need to do what needs to be done. But we operate from scarcity. If we are operating from abundance, there's enough for everybody. And our children need to see that. You know, not telling somebody pull your pants up. I don't have the right to tell you that. Let me get to know you. What is your story? What is your story? Without judging. I don't need to demand respect because I got silver in my head and I got wrinkles. You earn respect. And that's through loving relationships. Because I know it were. I could have been so different. But I knew that I was loved. And if every child can have that support, we are the mountain. We are the mountain. The young woman that we brought into our home, she went on to do amazing things, and I, she has married, has beautiful children. Um, I have uh, Ebony Sloan Clark. She's the director of uh, behavioral health for the state. She was my mentor, uh, mentee, as uh, Keith Dempsey was. And she, uh, when I was at Jefferson High School, she uh, was going through PSU with the MSW program so proud of her. I can share her story because she shared it. Ebony's mom struggled with addiction, foster care. Her brother was in prison for murder. Another brother in prison for murder. She didn't give up. I didn't give up. And in a loving relationship with her mother. 
because you don't leave someone out. Dr. Moreland, she, uh, psychiatrist, she's a therapist, uh, medical doctor. I was blessed to be able to be, uh, have her in our home and her brother. Uh, and he came out in our home. I just thought, you know, divine timing, creating a safe space for them. And they're doing amazing work. I was there when he, you know, he, he married his partner and uh, just doing well, even through the mom with the struggles. I welcomed the mom. I said, thank you for sharing your children with me. Never judging, never leaving. It's the village. We need each other. Um, I'm thinking of um, a young woman. Um, she texted she texted. She said, um, I'm asking you and another woman is a great poet in the city. She said, uh, I have uh, maybe 18 months to live. And I want you uh, to speak my eulogy. That hit me. I'm like, wow. Then, you know, we're talking. But it's, of course, I'm there for her because I've been there for her. She said, I don't want, I'm telling, I don't want people coming all that chair stuff and doing this, that. No, you know what I do. You know how I roll. You know, if you want, it's a blunt, whatever. Do it the way I want to do it. And that was such an honoring request. And to walk with her through her journey. Um, new mom, she lost her son. to uh, violence, to murder, to to be one of the first people she called to be there with her and to ask me to call the police to give her son some grace, to give the person some grace that it... Uh, it's just those times when you know that when you're there for someone, and that's the gift when you know that you've touched someone and that you, they know that you love them unconditionally. And they're, I, I, I'm just blessed to have a community of young people that are, that have just gone on to do well. And I, I remember uh, Rakai Adams, who was amazing. She said, I remember coming over to y'all's house. It was like the Hustable house. And I was like, huh? And uh, what a supreme compliment. You know, we we in the neighborhood, you know, working hard. And I even had gotten some light carpet. I said, y'all take y'all's shoes off. And somebody come up. This look like a used Nike store because the shoes are piled up at the door and they still coming in. But I think it's that gift just to um, show up with the love that's been given to me. Don't they say that's the rent you pay? That's what we have to do to pass it on. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. I think there's scripture, you can't be God's given. It comes back. When you pour in, you get poured on. And uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. The Ubuntu quote from uh, Desmond Tutu says, My humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. And I, I, I feel that, that we're all connected. I have a strong sense of our connection to the motherland and our connection to each other. And as I shared with Brother Keith, we have ancestors to please. Our work isn't done here. But this is the quote that my son loved. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Thanks for tuning in to Oregon Hidden Legacy. For more information about this podcast, go to OregonHiddenLegacy.org.